We now come to the time of our sermon, uh, and we're continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And this uh, morning finds us near the end of Exodus 12. Um, and it's printed for you in your bulletin. will be Exodus 12, verses 31 through 42. You can pull that up in your Bibles or on your phones. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. For the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the division, Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are, that you have revealed yourself in these words. And thus we catch a glimpse of who we are in you. So I pray in this moment by your spirit, give us insight, illumine our eyes, and open the eyes of our heart to see the promises that are ours in you, to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. So I love the Rocky movies. I've seen all of them probably 20 times, except for Rocky V, which I pretend didn't exist. If you've ever seen it, you know why. Um, it's, it's not a good movie. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Rocky movies, especially the first one. And if you don't have any background, I'm going to spoil it for you. The, movie, the first movie came out in 1978, so um, I, I don't think spoiler warning is necessarily due, but Rocky. So... <laughs> When we meet Rocky in Rocky One, he's a poor, semi-professional boxer. And the first scene we see is him fighting a boxing match in a church basement, and he wins. And his grand total prize that he takes home from this big fight with bruises on his, his eyes and blood on his face is $40. The guy who loses is $17. Um, 40 bucks. In, in, in uh, inflation terms to today, that would be um, about $200. So he's, uh, and even as he wins, he's leaving the ring and this woman shouts out to him, you bum, you're a bum. Even as he's winning. That's what's pronounced on him in the first scene of the movie, you're a bum. Well then suddenly, Rocky is plucked from obscurity. The champion Apollo Creed has decided that on the 200th anniversary of uh, America's founding in 1776, he's going to fight a boxer in Philadelphia. For him, it's going to be this gimmick match. You know, celebrate the 200th birthday of the United States by fighting a boxer in Philadelphia where the Declaration of Independence was, was, was penned. And so Apollo Creed treats it like a gimmick. He doesn't really train hard. Rocky does. Rocky takes it seriously. He starts training. He starts to believe that maybe he can... 
do a little bit more than just fight in the church basement. Well, the night before the fight is there, and the weight of it all is hitting Rocky, he can't sleep, and he's talking to his wife, Adrian. This is what he says to her. Who am I kidding? I ain't even in this guy's league. It don't matter, because I was nobody before. I was nobody. It really don't matter if I lose this fight, because all I want to do is go the distance. All, and if I can go the distance, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. And he does. Match happens the next day, and Rocky does go the distance. He loses the match. Apollo wins in, in a decision. But Rocky, at the end of the fight, is still standing, and he's vindicated. He shows that he's more than what the neighborhood had called him, more than what he had called himself. He's not just another bum from the neighborhood. Our passage today here in Exodus 12 is kind of like the end of Rocky. I'll explain. Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt have been defeated. That's what systematically happened in the ten plagues. God is facing off, and we've talked about that. God is facing off against the false gods of Egypt. So there's a god of the Nile. Well, what does God do? He turns the Nile into blood. There's the God of the sun in Egypt. So what does God do? He makes it darkness in the middle of the day. He's systematically showing his power over the false gods of Egypt. And in a final victory, he faces off against the very real ruler, Pharaoh. And so where we are in Exodus 12, the match is over, the bell has rung, and God is victorious. And what do we see? The Israelites become vindicated. They aren't just slaves to be used up and thrown away, which is what they had been treated as. As nothing. As cattle. As things to be used up to build the wealth of Egypt. Well, they're vindicated. They are not just that. But unlike Rocky, the Israelites did not fight the fight. God fought for them. God wins the victory without any help from them. And he turns around and he gives them the benefits of his victory. God fights their battles and they get the victory. Now that's a dynamic that we see here in the book of Exodus, but not just in the book of Exodus. This is something that is uh, set here. It becomes part of the rhythm of Scripture as you move on. For God's people, the true enemies of their souls, God faces them, defeats them for his people. And he gives them the benefit of his victory. That's reiterated over and over again in Scripture. Most clearly, to skip ahead, in Jesus Christ. Jesus fights the battles for his people and he gives us the victory. And he is our defender. He's our keeper. So let's look at that a little bit more uh, this morning, a little more fully. And we'll begin with the first section, the bell has rung. As I said, the ten plagues have almost been like uh, rounds of a fight. They've gone through, God's faced off against these false gods, and God has won clearly without question. And so right here in our passage, Pharaoh, who's been resistant since uh, way back in Exodus uh, 5, he finally gives in. He cries uncle. Pharaoh gives in. Moses has demanded that Pharaoh set the Israelites free, and so Pharaoh says, okay, what you said you want, just go, leave, leave. I'm beat, but please leave. The slavery, the slavery of the Israelites is over. It's over. Hundreds of years. It's over. The bell has rung and they are free. And they're not only free. See, they, they win reward for this battle. Notice as they're leaving, the Egyptians give them treasures of silver and gold and clothing. 
The Israelites do not leave their slavery empty-handed. In fact, it even calls it plunder. Plunder is what uh, armies win when they win a battle. They can run into the city and just take all the stuff. The Israelites didn't lift a finger. They leave Egypt not empty-handed. And think of it this way. The treasure and the wealth that they were given, it was kind of built on their backs anyway. You remember the very first chapter of Exodus. The Israelites were enslaved. And the result of that slavery was so much wealth that Pharaoh had to build two uh, uh, store cities to store it all. Well, here it is. Israelites are getting their back pay and then some as they're on their way out. But don't think of this, Pharaoh saying they can finally leave and the Egyptians sending them off with a bunch of treasure. Don't think of this as Pharaoh or the Egyptians suddenly having a change of heart. As if they've seen clearly what's just happened to all their gods in the face of the true God and turned to him in faith. Because that's not what's happened. Notice how Pharaoh talks to them. Pharaoh doesn't say anything about being wrong. He just knows he's been beat. He doesn't say anything about being wrong. He's still motivated only by his self-interest. As they're on their way out, he says, go, go, go. What's the last thing he says? And also bless me. All he can see in the face of his gods that he's worshipped, that have undergirded his power, being exposed and defeated, all he can see is possibly another relationship to leverage for his benefit. He doesn't want to turn to God in faith. He says, uh, maybe, maybe, you can, maybe you can bless me. Maybe you can bless me. And the Egyptians, notice, they don't seek to go with the Israelites. Imagine what they just watched. And these plagues, their entire society, and what they thought was uh, solid and, and, and a good foundation built on the slavery of the Israelites has been exposed and pulled out into the light. But what, they, what have they done? They've still closed their eyes to the God who's not only shown himself in great power, but great mercy. God had shown himself throughout the plagues, not just to be visiting judgment upon Egypt, but in rescuing the Israelites over and over again. You would think they would see it and say, our gods can do nothing for us. Our society is built on lies. It's built on slavery of these people. I need to turn from this. And wherever they're going, that's where I'm going to. Now we know from actually in this passage and we know from later on that, that that's actually true. A number of people leave Egypt to go with the Israelites. They're with them in the wilderness. They go with them in the promised land. And they're not people that are descended from Abraham. They're not people that are you know, genetically connected to the Israelites. But the vast majority of people in Egypt, when the question came, they stayed right there to receive the benefit. Now think about that. If you read through the plagues, and we've talked a, a, a lot about them in the last couple of months. If you read through the plagues, you'll notice, there's a train going by. You'll notice that God only gives the Israelites one very specific thing to do in the plagues. And it's in the tenth plague, the Passover. What does he tell them to do? He tells them to kill a lamb for supper, which is something they would have done very often. And to dab which is that she paints it, she gets the very last day of painting asked me to dot the I on the signature and then tells everybody I did. Or, uh, Chris, you're wearing a UNC uh, uh, set of them. No. <laughs> uh, but I'm a UNC fan. UNC basketball. Go Hills. Huge fan. I didn't go there. And when I talk about the team, if I'm not thinking about it, I say we, like I did anything. All I do is cheer on. I've got so many t-shirts when we win championships. See, I just did it. When they win a championship, I buy the championship shirt and I wear it around and puff out my chest like I had anything to do with it at all. 
When I say we, I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. They did all the work, and all I've done is cheer. The reality of salvation in God is that He does all the work, He achieves it, and He lets us wear the shirt and say we. He lets us wear the shirt and say we. He wins the victory and we get the title, you know, the championship ring to wear. Friends, by ourselves, we're not able. We face a predicament in our sin that we cannot overcome. We live in a world that is so often defined by things that are, are, are wrong. By ourselves, we're not able to be free. We're guilty and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves not guilty. We're trapped in sin and there's nothing we can do to break its hold. But God fights our battle for us. In Jesus, He takes His sin from us onto His own shoulders. And the cross is Jesus being punished instead of us. It's Jesus voluntarily saying, me, not them, not Tim, me, me. And He does this because He loves us. He takes on the punishment for our sins so we don't have to be punished. And there is zero punishment left for me. And I do nothing for that. <laughs> he does it all. In Jesus, the powers of evil and Satan that bind our world are faced. We read that in our assurance of pardon passage. He talks about binding the strong man and plundering his house. Jesus was telling the people who were wondering what he was doing, casting out demons, healing people, telling people they're forgiven. They're wondering what he's doing. And he says, I am here to overcome the strong man that has bound this world that belongs to my father. I am here to defeat Satan and plunder his house of the treasure. And we are the treasure that he wins to himself. Jesus faces what we can't, and he is victorious. We are joined to Him, and all that is His by rights is ours by grace. He overcomes all the enemies of our soul. He overcomes the lies that we believe. He overcomes the real accusations of our own sin. All the things that hold us bound. And what's left for us to do? Receive. He wins the victory, announces it to us in His gospel, and that's what gospel means, good news. And we receive it as a gift. And what do we receive? Just a couple of things. Think of this. Here's the amazing truth. In Jesus, we aren't just forgiven of sin. It's not like we have a negative balance and He takes care of us and, and brings it back to zero. And now it's up to us to you know, maintain it and keep it right. No, the picture that we get in Scripture is this. That Jesus not only forgives our sin, but He credits us as righteous. That Jesus had lived a perfect life. He had not given in to temptation. He had obeyed the voice of the Father. He had done right. And He takes that vindication that is His. He takes that righteousness that He earned and He gives it to us by faith. Meaning that when God looks at us, what does He see? He sees us in Jesus always and forever. We are never looked at and accounted just on the on merits of our sin. Our sin is washed away. And we are seen in Christ. We are vindicated and treated as if we lived the life that Jesus did. And how do we receive this righteousness? We don't earn it. We don't have to get in and fight one round and let Jesus fight the rest of the rounds. And just hope we hold on for the one round we have. No, He fights the whole fight. And we receive it by faith. He buys the present. He wraps the present. He hands it to us. And that's what we do. We receive it. 
He wins the victory, and we get the reward along with Him. Friends, that's part of the reason why our hope is in His resurrection. We just celebrated that at Easter, and as I've said the last few weeks, for the Christian, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday, to celebrate the fact that our Savior is victorious. But the hope of the resurrection is this, that Jesus took our sins with Him to the grave, and He left them there. He took our sins to the grave and left them there. They're not going to rise again. As He emerged, He emerged in new life, vindicated that our sins are left in the grave, never to rise up to accuse us again. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a sign that He had overcome the power of death. It was a sign that He had been vindicated by the Father, and by faith we are joined to Him and vindicated as well. And this becomes our comfort. This is our comfort, that He has fought the battle, the victory is His, and by faith it's ours as well, because He gives it to us. That becomes our hope, that we are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The bell is run, and He's victorious, and because of this, we are too. And that brings me to my next section, the way out. So the battle is over, and the Israelites what, get out of town quick. They get out of town quickly. We can see they're urged on by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but I actually don't think they needed much convincing. <laughs> the doors open and they, they run, right? In fact, they go so quickly they only have time to make and eat unleavened bread, which you can make pretty quickly. Much quicker than uh, making bread with yeast. And this, this haste to get out of the place of their bondage, these are the first steps of exodus. Of their exodus. God leading them out of Egypt. Now I talked about this months ago. The exodus means the way out. Or the pathway out. And there may be a question here. God has shown himself in great power. Defeating these false gods of Egypt. To set them free. But what's next? What's next? Think about it. These people had never traveled far. They'd never traveled far at all. Suddenly they're going to be in places they've never been to before, never heard of before. They've been one from slavery in Egypt, but what now? There's no GPS to tell them where to go. And maybe there's a question as to whether God's just freeing them. And then, I don't know, almost like a parent trying to teach their kid to swim just tosses them in the deep end and says, try your best. See how it goes. That's how I learned how to swim. Um, I actually jumped in. Not to, my parents didn't throw me in. That, that, uh, anyway. Maybe there's the question of whether God would remain with them. What we see in the first steps of Exodus, this way out, that, that, that God does not leave them. Look at verse 42. The Lord kept vigil that night. As they're fleeing, the Lord kept watch. The Lord kept vigil that night. He kept vigil that night and every night afterward. The first step of this exodus, it leads to years of travel. And they face so many troubles that seemed incredibly daunting. Things like the slavery in Egypt that are too big for them to face by themselves. They face opposition from armies along the way of other nations. They face the threat of hunger and thirst. They face temptations and rebellions from within. But in and all, in all their wandering to get home, the Lord keeps vigil. The Lord leads them by day and by night. The Lord feeds them. The Lord provides water for them when there's no water to be found. 
The Lord gives them his instructions. The Lord gives them his mercy. The Lord literally pitches his tent in the middle of their camp to say, you live in a tent, so do I. I am with you. He gives them the tabernacle. The Lord is their keeper. And they learn in this long travel that they probably wanted to be much shorter. They learn what we read in Zephaniah 3 in our call to worship. That the Lord, your God, is in your midst. That he's a victorious warrior. That he will exalt over you with joy. That he will quiet you in his love. That he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now that doesn't mean that the Israelites are entirely passive. They're not. God called them into a relationship. And when He gives them instructions in their guidance, they are to follow. His love is to be received as a gift. Their instructions listened to. But all of that, them following after Him, them receiving His, his love as a gift and listening, those are all fruits of a tree whose root is their lo- His love for them. And that's true for us. And I think anytime we forget this, anytime God's people have forgotten this, it leads to terrible things. We can often hear maybe the parable that Jesus uses about good fruit. Good, good tree bears good fruit. We can hear that and go, oh, ew. I don't see much fruit on my tree at all. <laughs> but the root of the tree is not our good intentions. The root of the tree is not how hard we try. The root of the tree is the never-ending Unstopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of our God for us. That's the root for us. That even when the fruit is indiscernible, when we can't see the fruit, when when we can't put our hands on it, the root still remains. It never dries up because it can't. And friends, the goal for us The goal for the Israelites too. But the goal for us in the Christian life is not to think of it like God takes care of our past sins and now we need to work really hard to stay in His good favor. Sometimes I think we can think of salvation as God wins us by grace, but we want to get to a point where one day we'll be self-sufficient. That God wins us by His grace and He gives us His grace, but our real goal is to get to the point where we don't really need His grace. Like our goal is to get to the place where we can stand on our own two feet, be mature, and point to ourselves. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. Because believing that will short-circuit our understanding of how immense His love for us is. We never move on from His grace. We never do. Us being forgiven at the beginning of our Christian life, that's just the first step of a long road where every step, where the road is His grace. Where our sustenance along the way is His grace. Where the air we breathe in and out is His grace. Where His incredible love for us is all in all. The goal is not that we get to the point where we stand on our two feet. Because we never will. But the nourishment and lifeblood of our faith is His love for us. We are received home by Him to call Him Father. We're received home as His adopted children. And we find a home that is always ours. So in closing, some thoughts here. The invitation for us this morning is to know these truths. And to be mindful of the temptation for us to turn from Jesus to other things as our confidence, to other things as our source of life. 
The calling for us is to continuously find ourselves loved by, carried along by, and provided by God. Now maybe you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. And I, I hate to tell you, but your sin and the evil of this world are too big for you. They haven't swallowed you up yet, they will. It's just a matter of time. It's a fight you cannot win. But the victory I've talked about, the victory that Jesus won, is, can be yours as well. Come to Jesus by faith. Trust in Him completely and receive His victory as a gift for you. Maybe you're here and you're stumbling along the way. And it's really difficult. Sometimes believing all this is going to be harder than others. Sometimes this is really hard to believe. But I think that's one of the reasons we're brought together with other believers in the church. Maybe the way ahead doesn't look clear, but when that's true, we'll lock hands and we'll walk together. We'll keep going. When I can't hear the gospel because the lies and the static of the world are too loud, you keep speaking it into my ear and you remind me. When it doesn't feel like my legs can take the next step, maybe you pick me up and carry me. And I you. That's not a weakness to run away from. That's not something to be ashamed of. We're brought together to help carry each other, to help walk with one another in this way. And how do we do it? We do it always in prayer. Um, maybe we get intentional, even more intentional, about praying for and with each other. Maybe we make a list. The people you know. And as you're driving down the road or as you're doing housework or whatever it is, we lift each other up in prayer. We do that in words of encouragement, reminding each other of the truth of the gospel. Seeing all the ways that we so often run to other things to help explain and make sense and categorize our world. Well, let's get rid of all of that. And let's speak to, God, to, to each other the words of encouragement. We do this, of course, in acts of love toward one another. And in all of this, friends, in closing, we're carried along by our God, knowing that in the last verses of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, in the last verses, that His goodness and mercy will follow us, not just follow us, His goodness and mercy will chase after us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord 